Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Pete, doing well. It's about to be ski season. Actually, it is. So we're doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. We got the same thing. We got snow on the hill. Kansas has got one run run open. So you could ski here, but you'd be best off to wait until after Christmas if you really want to hit the whole mountain. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode based around a subject that is near and dear, I think, to everyone's heart. And we're going to talk specifically about practice building. So once you have a job, how do you fill your clinic? How do you fill your surgery schedule? As a young surgeon, how do you go on referrals? In a competitive environment, this can be a constant struggle. It's certainly an area where almost everyone can learn something. To discuss, we've invited two guests. First, we have Dr. Samuel Taylor, who's a sports and shoulder surgeon at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Sam, how are you? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Rachel. And we also have the honor of having Dr. Leslie Vidal with us here today. Dr. Vidal is an all-star orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist who practices at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. And she also has the unique perspective of not only starting out in practice early in her career, like all of us, but more recently transitioned from her thriving practice to join the Stedman Clinic last year. And so she has um, some very recent tips, I think, for building her practice in a new environment. So Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rachel. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. So I wanted to start by having each of you share just a little bit about your current practice situation, because I think it's really relevant to the listener to kind of understand where you're coming from. So Sam, tell us about where you are right now. So I'm I'm at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, and uh, we're a kind of private academic type of a model. So um, we we obviously have residents and fellows, uh, but but run um, our independent uh, private practices as well. And so, um, you know, um, it's certainly been an, an interesting kind of way to get going. Uh, I mean, I did my training there, which is, I think always, uh, can be helpful if you kind of know a system when you're uh, coming into it and getting started. But, um, it, there's, there's certainly been some growing pains over the last six years as, as I've kind of, um, uh, tried to, to build a practice. And then I think the, the most interesting part of it is kind of seeing how a practice will find a way to develop on its own. Um, so, uh, you know, right now, at least, you know, my, my practice is primarily shoulder, probably about 75% shoulder and, and 25% knee, uh, it's sports includes a lot of shoulder arthroplasty way more than I ever thought that I would be doing. Um, and uh, I'm involved in sports team coverage with the New York uh, football giants who are tied for first place despite a abysmal record. And, um, and I have a good time getting a chance to work with the residents and fellows as well. So it sounds like you're part of a large system, but in some ways kind of running a little bit of your own thing within that system. And there's people running each of their own things. Um, Leslie, you basically said about- it, you said it better than you said it better than I could, Peter. So thank you. Yeah. So a very a very large uh, orthopedic institution, um, but with uh, a, a lot of individual autonomy with regard to the direction that practice goes. Okay, perfect. And then Leslie, tell us a little bit about your practice situation, where you are now, and um, what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So on a much smaller scale, we are also sort of in a private practice with an academic um, uh, focus as well. Um, And each one of the physicians at the Stedman Clinic uh, does also kind of run their practice um, in a certain autonomy. Uh, But then we, we, you know, share overhead and and support one another. Um, We don't have residents, but we do have fellows. And so we have a big um, research and education focus uh, with our fellows. Um, you know, I've been here at the Stedman Clinic in Vail for just about a year and a half. And prior to that, I was in sort of a small private practice in Denver with uh, eight physicians um, at a small community hospital. So I have a little bit of perspective on how to grow that type of practice. And then, as Rachel mentioned, 
after 14 years um, was sort of, you know, introduced to this new environment and, and am now, um, you know, in a way starting over and, and regrowing and rebranding myself um, in this new environment. Well, it's, it's great to have perspectives from private practice with academic twists, because I think a lot of our listeners, you know, despite um, all of us growing up in academic programs, obviously between, you know, residency by default is an academic situation and, and fellowship is more or less um, academic, depending on where you go. I think most of our listeners and most of, of graduates end up going into some sort of private practice setting. Um, so it's, I think this will be really valuable in terms of hearing how you guys have been so successful with your practices. You know, one, one of the things I think we all want to know, even some of our most, I can tell you, some of my most established partners still want to know the secret, um, secret sauce here is where do most of your patients come from? Um, how, how do you get them? Where do they come from? Leslie, let's start with you. How, how does this work? How did it work back for you in Denver and how is it working now for you in Vail? Yeah, you know, I think when you first start out, um, your patients come from all over the place. I think, um, you know, certainly your partners may refer you things if you have kind of a special niche that nobody else um, has in your practice. Um, you know, one of the opportunities typically is to be on the call schedule and, and potentially get some of your volume from the ER. Um, you certainly want to reach out to all the primary care physicians and even the physical therapists in your community um, and start to form relationships there and, and hope that you get some uh, more sort of consistent steady stream referrals from, from those uh, refers. Um, and then ultimately, once your practice matures, a lot of your patients come by word of mouth. And so um, patients refer their friends and family members, uh, physical therapists who, who have rehabbed your patients and, and see your good outcomes will start referring you patients. Um, and so, um, you know, things kind of snowball in that way as, as you grow your practice uh, and you have satisfied patients and, and physical therapists, then, then they're honestly your best source of referrals. And Sam, how about you? You know, in, in New York, obviously a very competitive, saturated market, and you you had both the advantage and potentially the disadvantage of um, of working in the same place that you trained. And so, you know, sometimes you, you may not have first crack at some of the new patients, depending on um, the system that you're in. So, so what has been your best source of um, getting patients? Where do you get them from, and how does that work with regard to being in such a competitive environment? So, so I would say that, you know, one of the unique things about um, my practice is that I, even though I am at a, a big academic um, institution, um, I'm, I'm split my time between our main campus uh, hospital and two days a week at a, what at the time when I was getting started was a new satellite location um, about 45 minutes away Um in Fairfield County. And uh, what was very interesting about being at the satellite was that the generation of, of patients there was, I don't want to say, because I don't have, I don't have the comparison of knowing exactly what it's like to be in a, a small group private practice setting, but was certainly dramatically different from um, the patient referral base that I had during my time in the main hospital. And so I found that that during my time in the main hospital, initially the, the a lot of the patient referrals were coming from the cachet of the the institutional name that people wanted their care at HSS, and so I happened to be there and available, um, and so a lot I was getting a lot of patients that way. And uh, at our satellite location, uh, it was. Uh, completely the opposite. Uh, the, the 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 same referral base just didn't exist, and so I spent a ton of time reaching out into the community, going to meet physical therapists, giving talks at local high schools, kind of doing a lot of the more grassroots build of of a practice. I would certainly echo what what Leslie said in that um, there there is a time point somewhere that occurs, kind of. Uh, between three and six years in practice, depending upon where you're at, where you reach a critical mass of patients that you have treated and are happy uh, and your practice starts to refer to itself. So while initially I was getting in at the main campus, most, most of the referrals from, from institutional 
uh, and at the satellite through physical therapists and primary care doctors that I that I met. At some point, it kind of transitions over, and I would say that almost 50% of the, the new patients that I see now are referred in some way or another from patients that I've already treated. So that's uh, kind of that. Sam, I wanted to follow up on something you just said, because I think it's actually a really important kind of concept in practice building generally. It sounds like in one of your locations, a lot of your patients came from the reputation of the institution more so than the reputation of you personally. Um, right. do, do you do you feel like that didn't play a role? Like there was not the same there there was not name recognition for HSS where you went in the satellite clinic, or did you feel more that it was? Tell us a little bit why that why that didn't translate to the new location. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was interesting as we kind of branched out into uh, into kind of more uh, different communities further away from from Manhattan. I think that there was initially a uh, a, th a thought. Uh, and or hope uh, from the institution that the the HSS name would carry itself uh, out at a distance. But what what we actually found was that within the communities, there are just pretty heavily rooted um, uh, referral patterns that 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 ha that go back years that through primary care doctors, through through other physicians and that people that other physicians and therapists, refer people to people that they have gotten to know their work and have gotten to meet and gotten to trust. Uh, and that the, while name recognition is helpful, it certainly, it certainly isn't all of it. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reaching out and trying to meet people. And I've, I've actually found that that the reaching out to the physical therapist and getting to know the physical therapist was one of the most powerful referral sources uh, for me early on. And I would, you know, often anytime any of the physical therapists asked, hey, if, could I come by and shadow you for, for a half a day in the clinic? Or, you know, come, would you mind come and give us an in-service on, you know, topic X, Y, and Z? I didn't, I didn't encourage everybody to jump at those opportunities because, those are those are going to be your, your opportunities to get in front of other people's face, let them get to know you, let them to get a sense for, you know, how you are as uh, as a diagnostician and educator, um, all of those things, um, because then when they they see patients, you know, your physical therapists are spending a ton of time with people They're, they they get a sense for who's who's failing the non-surgical management um, and they they have probably been my biggest referral base uh, out uh, in Connecticut. Sam, I, could, I couldn't I could agree with you more. The physical therapists are such an important referral source, not only for what you mentioned, because they, they speak the same language as you and they spend a lot of time with their patients, but also because it's a two-way street, you can refer them patients. So you can build a relationship right. in a way that it's harder to build a relationship maybe with a primary care doctor. It sounds mm. like in your case, the satellite clinic has been maybe a double-edged sword, maybe a in some ways, an untapped resource from your partners, but a resource that would have been tapped by other individuals in the community. Leslie, do you do you go to any satellite centers? What's been your experience with satellite centers and practice building? Yes. So at this point, I do. In my practice in Denver, we um, really only practiced at one location, which was certainly convenient and easy. Um, and up here in Vail, I see patients in sort of the mothership at, at, at the Vail location. And I also see patients in our Frisco location, which is about 40 minutes away and, and is one of our satellites. Um, for me, that has been particularly successful because Frisco is a bit closer to Denver. And I continue to get a lot of referrals from, again, former patients, physical therapists, um, primary care docs, and my former partners, again, quite frankly, um, from my Denver population. And so I've been able to to continue to um, to be successful at the satellite location. Um, you know, I think I would echo, again, a lot of what Sam said and even take it a step further, rather than sort of capitalize on those opportunities when they present themselves. I was pretty aggressive about creating those sort of community type opportunities. Um, so I, you know, went to primary care docs offices and made sure to meet everybody and bring coffee and bagels and um, offered to give talks and in-services as Sam mentioned. Um, same thing with physical therapists. 
They do like to come watch you in the OR and watch a case that they've been rehabbing, you know, the patient before surgery and they failed a non-operative course. And um, then they want to, you know, see the surgery and then follow the patient postoperatively, which is a terrific way to build that relationship. Um, but also emergency room docs and urgent care docs. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, potentially getting on the call schedule. And I think, you know, I had sort of a level four trauma center. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, crazy um, high level trauma, but we did see a lot of hip fractures and uh, wrist fractures and ankle fractures. And while you think, boy, I'm a sports doc, why do I need to take care of that kind of stuff? The reality is there's a lot of stuff that comes through the ER that doesn't need to get admitted. And if you create a good relationship with those emergency room and urgent care physicians, they're going to send you the ACLs that they see, the shoulder instabilities, the Achilles, the distal biceps, et cetera, stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be taken care of urgently, but they'll throw your card and your name and, and send them your way if you create a good uh, a good relationship with them. And, you know, that just entails going down to the ER, you know, seeing the doc who's taking care of the patient face to face, potentially giving them a little bit of follow up if they uh, refer you a patient and those sorts of things. Um and so I did, I did the same as Sam and, and talked to primary care docs, physical therapists, ER docs. I went to senior living uh, facilities because I did a lot of shoulder arthroplasty in Denver, athletic clubs, CrossFit gyms, et cetera. Um, and I think all of that, you know, kind of talking to the community is also really valuable. Okay. CrossFit gyms are a, a unyielding source of patients. It's just you may get run out of town by the CrossFit owners. But uh, – <laughs> But, you know, one of, one of the other things that or a couple of other things just to, to add to all of that is um, get to get to know your partners and and probably more importantly than than expecting that you are going to have one of your senior partners that does the same thing that you do send you, you know, a, a shoulder replacement or an ACL, I know we're shoulder and elbow here, but like the sending, sending you a cuff or an instability, what I would encourage people to do early on is reach out to the people that aren't in your specialty, that are in your group and, and offer to do, offer to do things that fall within, within the confines of, of what, what you do that are sometimes like the undesirable things. Um, you know, because even if it is, even if it is, um, it, it's a way to build trust and uh, get to know uh, your partners who are going to then have their patients that have issues that you do want to treat that send it to you, that they're going to have their grandkids that that have shoulder instability, they're going to have their, you know, the, the patient's husband that needs a, a shoulder replacement. And one of the things that that I did early on, which actually turned out to be a tremendous, tremendously positive thing was um, I got involved with chronic extensor mechanisms of the knee with our, our arthroplasty people um, from the, from the sport side of things. And which is something that they don't really want to deal with. Uh, and, and it really helped me build a relationship with our hip knee arthroplasty people so that now I'm getting, you know, a lot more of the shoulder things that, that I want to see um, that are referred by those guys and gals because, because I've gotten to build a, a type of um, a relationship uh, with them. And so, you know, if there are things that you, that you have to offer, especially things that are undesirable to, to, people in other fields around you, um, whether it's in your group or others, um, those are great ways to, to build confidence in, in the other surgeons who will, you know, undoubtedly have the referrals to send. Sam, I think that's such a great point. Although I, I will say that when you say those words, it makes me feel like You've been indoctrinated by a senior partner who is like, this is the right way. This is the best way to do it. I promise it'll work. Just take these patients. Anyway, <laughs> Leslie, you mentioned yeah. a, a thousand things that you've done. You mentioned a, yep. a, a, a bunch of different avenues, you know, and I'm sure along the way you saw that some were higher yield than others. Which of those things do you think was the highest yield and which was the lowest yield? I think the highest yield thing you can do is to make yourself available. So anytime anybody calls, um, when you're first starting out, the answer is yes. Like Sam said, maybe it's not exactly what you want to see and do, 
but again, you're creating relationships and trust. Um, and that may, you know, whatever patient you see with back pain may have a spouse or a child with an ACL tear or a, or a shoulder instability problem. Um, so I think becoming available is number one. Um, and I think uh, when you do go out into the community, um, quite frankly, I think the community talks were maybe the lowest yield. Um, patients get excited about that. I think there's good marketing value in all of these things. If you can hang up a flyer in the in the community center or the gym or the doctor's lounge with your name and your face, and you know, Dr. Vidal is going to talk about rotator cuff repairs, state of the art rotator cuff repairs. Even if people who are seeing the flyer can't make it to your talk, at least they're going to see your name and see your face and think about you associated with rotator cuff pathology. So maybe if they have a rotator cuff tear, they might send it your way. So I think the marketing for some of these things is just as valuable as actually giving the talk. Um, so probably meeting with primary care physicians and physical therapists and even the ER are, are probably the actual, the, the, best, uh, the best bang for your buck. Community talks, again, seemed like a good idea, but what I found was a lot of the people that came to those were actually already my patients who wanted to hear me talk. Um, so I didn't necessarily bring in as many new patients as, as I would have hoped. Yeah, I would, I, would agree, I would agree with that. I would say highest yield has been physical therapists. Lowest yield has actually been social media. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a big social media person, but I, I did start doing a, an Instagram thing for my practice. And I've been, maybe I'm doing it poorly, but I've been underwhelmed with its productivity. Um, I, I will say that the community outreach things, um, if anywhere you can, you can go to, if you can get a captive audience that that's best. And I've found that the, the lowest yield community outreach things for me have been the ones where the hospital sponsors some, you know, talk on rotator cuff or shoulder arthritis and, and you get five people that show up. Um, I do think that there's value, just like Leslie said, with the marketing side that goes with it. But um, I have found that I've gotten quite a bit of business by choosing a topic that happens to be timely to a group. Like in the fall, I give a, a talk on uh, helmet safety and concussions to football teams and we invite the parents. And even though I'm not, I'm not seeing concussions in my office, um, it gives you an opportunity to get in front of people, to put your credentials in front of people, to allow them to see how you are uh, as a speaker and educator. Um, and, and so that, you know, from that, I've gotten a lot of, of shoulder injuries and, and other injuries from teams, from parents, from grandparents that have attended some of these things. But it's because it's kind of like a captive audience. So I don't know that you need to even talk necessarily about exactly what it is that you're that you are going that you that you want to 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 see it's just you're just looking for an opportunity to get in front of an audience so that they can get to know you a little bit i'm sure you guys have seen with your with your own practices as new partners get hired or you've just heard through the grapevine mistakes or maybe you've made some yourself we've all made them what, what are some bad things that people do or, or mistakes that people make when trying to build a practice so that our listeners can hopefully avoid those. Leslie, let's start with you. What, what have you seen with some of the newer surgeons in your group, either back in Denver or here in Vail, um, or uh, I, that, that you've seen or that, that you've heard about that you'd like to advise people to avoid? Well, I think the fatal flaw is to come into practice thinking you're a surgeon, and if people refer you non-surgical things, that you don't have time for it and you send it back. In the community, um, primary care docs will have a patient call and say, I've got shoulder pain, and they will immediately refer that to an orthopedic surgeon. And so you have to manage and sift through all the non-operative stuff um, to build a surgical practice. And so that's, you know, that's just part of, part of the way it goes. And so I've seen some people not sort of, you know, give appropriate time and attention to patients with non-surgical problems. 
And then patients are kind of turned off. The referrers are kind of turned off. Um, and then that's things fizzle out pretty quickly. So if you spend a lot of time, even with the non-surgical stuff, maybe you do a couple of injections and they wind up, you know, going on to surgery eventually, or, um, you know, again, their friend or family member, you know, they, they had such a great experience with you and they could avoid surgery and they got an injection and some PT and they're doing great. Their friend who has a surgical problem will then get referred to you. So I think really, you know, making sure that you, that you take care of everybody, um, thoughtfully is, is I think really important and, and not just considering yourself a surgeon. One of my mentors, Steve O'Brien said something to me that, that resonated and still, and still does. And he said, he said, don't be afraid to not operate because if you, if you can counsel somebody to avoid an operation that, that, you know, maybe they, they could avoid with that, without surgical treatment that will pay you back in spades because they're going to tell all their friends, I've got an orthopedic surgeon. This person is not scalpel happy. And when their friend comes to see you and you say, you need an operation there, they, they are going to have this built confidence that, that if you're saying it needs an operation and you told my buddy that they don't need an operation, then I need an operation. And so don't be afraid not to operate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say a, a mistake that I made personally is, and this, this was particularly important in, in our Connecticut area was I did not do a good job communicating with the referring providers after I saw them. And it takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, sometimes if it's built into your EMR, it, it can be facilitated, but uh, I did not appreciate uh, how much value there was in just sending your note with a brief, with a brief letter to, to a, a referring provider that, that, that in itself goes a long way and, and a mistake that I made early on that probably burned me. Sam, I think it's fascinating you mentioned that because it's so hard actually to do because even better is to send a text message or call someone at the end of the day and say, hey, I saw so-and-so that you referred over and I just wanted to give you some follow-up. But it's at the end of the day, I mean, you have another bunch of other things going through your mind. You're like, I got to get home. It's That's a really challenging one. But if you could do that, it's so powerful. One of the questions I wanted to ask both of you is, about the use of the web, which is, you know, increasingly, you know, going to be a way I think a lot of patients are going to find us in the future. I know both of you have websites independent of your institutions. Tell us a little bit about your websites. Have they garnered referrals? How did you go about setting them up? Have you found this to be valuable? Leslie, tell us about it. Yeah. So in my previous practice, I didn't have my own individual um, uh, website and we just was had, you know, my profile listed on our on our practice website. Um, and up here, um, I did decide to launch my own website. And, and it's only been about maybe six or nine months now. Um, my main motivation um, was a couple fold. Uh, number one, I think educationally for patients, it's really nice for you to be able to put out and I'm still building my content. Um, but for you to be able to put out some descriptions of common things you treat, how you think about them, what the treatment options are, um, and what your outcomes are, and ideally, you know, include some pictures um, uh, and, and potentially some videos on techniques so patients can have a little better understanding. And if you refer them to your own website, that's just going to sort of reinforce um, their, their trust in you for that problem. Um, you know, we talked just the tiniest bit about social media before, and I am not a big social media person at all. Um, one of the things I started to do in my old practice, though, was try to um, uh, uh, work on your own personal reviews because anytime a patient is referred to see you, the first thing they're going to do is to Google you. And um, sort of, you know, when they Google you, you don't want to have one out of five stars and a whole bunch of reviews. So kind of paying attention to that and managing that, I, I do think is important and valuable. Um, and so we've gone to, and I'm doing a little bit differently now than I did in my previous practice, but if a patient, you sort of finish up with their care, they've had surgery, they're, they're maybe their final follow-up visit, and they just really, you know, gosh, I feel so great. Thank you so much. I can't, you know, I can't tell you how appreciative I am for your care, having been under your care. You know, we'll, we'll ask them to do a review on the website and, and um, a review on the web. And then there's a program that can sort of 
banner, the, the top reviews on your website. So again, if a patient Googles you and goes to your website and then they can see just all the five-star reviews and the nice comments people have. So again, it's just reinforcing their, their hopefully their confidence in you. So that's how I'm using my website at this point. So my, my website is still in its original form from when I started practice and at the beginning of 2015. And I'm in the process of revamping it because um, I think that there are even better ways to use it. But I, I, I really like, very similar to Leslie, like I, I like to use the website as a tool. I, I want I a patient, I want to be able to educate a patient while I'm seeing them and then give them something on the way out so that they can refer back to, to see basically what, what we talked about. And so for me, I, like I have a, a sheet that on one side of it, it's got shoulder diagrams that I'm going to then I hand draw on. And then after, after we talk about everything, I flip it over and on the backside, it's got my website and, and directions of how to get to the education section with all of the different education things. And that way I can kind of draw an arrow, go visit my website, and I'll circle the different things that I want them to read about um, that, that we had covered during the talk. And so it's, it's similar to what Leslie said, just another way to reinforce what you're doing and build confidence in the patient that, that you know what you're talking about. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I've, that I've seen, in particular the people at Rush do a really nice job with, um, that I'm certainly going to do going forward, is... If you have your rehab protocols, I encourage you to, to post them on your website, make them public because that what you what I've found is that, I, you know, I've put together all of these rehab protocols that that I have for the different um, surgeries that we do. And um, they're pretty detailed and the physical therapists love them. And so now that that I have these these rehab protocols that are out there you know, other therapists are asking for the rehab protocols for other patients of other surgeons that are doing. And it's to get your name out there as somebody who knows what you're talking about, who's organized, who has a plan. So I'd encourage people to, to publish, to put together nice rehab protocols and, and publish them on your website, which is something I will do as part of the revamp. You know, with your guys' websites, I think for newer surgeons, you know, they're they're from a resident salary to a fellow salary. They finally have their first job. They may have loans to repay, houses to pay for, kids, et cetera. Um, and then a website is potentially an added expense. And while it's, it's not a huge expense, it's not trivial either. Um, do you guys fund your own website? Does your practice contribute? And how would you advise younger surgeons on this decision? Is it worth um, would you would you say the value of having your own website uh, pays for itself, or is that something you should wait until you know you're actually a little further along in practice? Uh, Sam, let's start with you. Uh, if you don't set it up early, you're never going to have the time to actually do it, which is the reason why it's taken me six years to to finally get to a point in a COVID pandemic where I had more time to actually work on on doing a revamp. So I would say early. Um, Regarding the expense, our, our our hospital won't pay for it. They they won't pay for a, a private website, so it's funded out of pocket. Um, but you know, one if you let's just say you get one operation out of each year uh, because of in some way, shape, or form of the visibility of your website. Um, I, then it pays for itself. Leslie, what are your thoughts? Does um, you know does your, does the Seven Clinic help supplement your website funding? Do you have to fund that out of pocket? Was that a no brainer decision for you, or did you contemplate? Well, maybe I don't need this. There's enough visibility with my group's website. What were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think I think similar to Sam, it's funded out of pocket, um, and so you know you just have to decide how how big you want to go. Um, doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Um, I, you know, I think honestly in this day and age, I think patients love to just sort of look at you and read about you and, and, you know, look at the operations that you do and, um, see what other patients had to say about you. So I, I, I do really think that there's some value there. Um, and like Sam said, if you don't start early then, and it's not going to happen. So, um, it's probably worthwhile setting up when you, um, when you first start practice and, and growing from there. No, I was gonna say one of the things that Leslie said too, is the patients want to 
they want to see you. And so if, and videos are really powerful and like HSS had us kind of film a, a, a little, you know, one and a half minute video clip when we get, when we got started. And I can't even say how many people say, Oh, I, you know, I came to you because I just, I just really liked hearing what you had to say on a video, which I thought sounded kind of cheesy, but, but the patients feel like they get an opportunity to, to hear your voice, to get to know you a little bit, uh, even if it's over, you know, a one or two minute video clip that you can post to your website. Yeah, for what it's worth for our younger listeners, again, I'm, I think I'm the youngest in practice out of the group of us here. Um, but I was one of our first at, at my group to bring a personal website and not everyone was in favor of that. And from a cost perspective, obviously, when you're first in practice, you're not making any money. But I'll tell you, you know, I'm in a little bit of a different market than Sam. So it takes about three surgeries per year to pay for the cost of my website. But you easily get one a month minimum. So it pays for itself. And I would agree with what Sam said. My video on non-operative treatment of meniscus tears brings in, I think, more patients than anything else because people want to avoid surgery, even though they're coming to a surgeon in many cases. So I would encourage everyone to make that self-investment, even if your group won't pay for it, or if your hospital system has a website, but it's not very user-friendly, just spend the money and, and make your own. And, and that will be one of the best things you can do in, you know, in this day and age to develop practice. Um, speaking of online presence, and, and Leslie brought this up a little bit. So I want to ask Sam, what, what are your thoughts on online reviews. Um, there's so many different avenues now, and we've got Google is probably the most common one that patients go to first, but there's vitals, there's health grades, there's your hospital systems review. Um, there's potentially ways to filter things in or filter things out. And if you get an unhappy patient, all it takes is that one one-star review to knock your average down. And lastly, it's very difficult to, to combat patients who may um, who may post things that are inaccurate or embellished on their encounter with you. And you really have no way to, to, to dispel that online. So how do you manage your, your online review profile? What steps do you take to, to help make that as good as it can be? I'm, I'm laughing right now, Rachel, because I just stopped looking at it because it was like, just like what you like what you said. I mean, I think on, on one of mine, there's, there's, somebody gave me, you know, no stars or one star and said, Hey, he did absolutely nothing for the pain, the electric shooting pain that goes from my neck all the way to my fingers and the numbness and tingling, you know, what, and, uh, you know, it just, and, and I don't know, you just, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, our institution does some things to, to try and maximize that, that I don't, uh, that I don't fully understand, but, um, I just found that, that you there's no middle ground like you, you either have people that think that you're god's gift to the world or people that just despise you Th those are the people that go on and and submit reviews unless you do what leslie uh, has suggested which i think is a fantastic idea and something that that i'm going to take away from this which is to to uh, encourage your happy patients to post you know, one thing, Pete, to add again, especially for our, our younger listeners, um, when I when I got six months into practice, I all of a sudden got a rating on my hospital systems website, and I had no idea where that popped up all of a sudden. And um, and it's important to know what the patients are getting asked and how they get asked to rate you. So, for example, in our big UC Health system, if you've been a patient of, say, an eye doctor as a new patient, and then you come see me as your orthopedic surgeon um, within three weeks, give or take, and, and this was when I first looked into this, so things may have changed, but that new patient won't get another um, uh, email or questionnaire because the system doesn't want to overburden the patient with too many questionnaires in a given time period. So even if you have a really happy patient, that happy patient may not be given an opportunity to do a review through your, your healthcare system. Um, and, and when you look at the questions that are asked, sometimes it's questions on parking or how long did you have to wait on the phone? And as an individual orthopedic surgeon, you may not have any control over any of that, but you're getting rated on that. So I would encourage the young listeners out here and even some of the older ones Find out what patients are being asked to rate you on. And then when you're in a visit, you can sometimes steer that feedback um, to subtly addressing some of those issues so that they know you've recognized that and they might 
rate that five stars instead of four stars for that particular question. And that's where I think, you know, Leslie's comment on pushing reviews toward very happy patients can be helpful because then the non-hospital-based system reviews, you do have more control over and you can you can try to get them to give you that five-star review that, that you deserve and that they need to have an opportunity to to, uh, to present um, through, you know, the, the other online systems away from your hospital system. Um, one, you know, one question. Rachel, is, just, just, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just, I was going to say, just, I'm just change, change, like, redirect that a little bit you know one of one of the things that is often in um in these various rating things is communication and and it's important that everybody recognizes that it's not just your communication in fact even more so it's the communication with your office staff and so one of the the most important things, which I think often gets overlooked, is the importance of hiring the right people to support you. The people who are going to be able to de-escalate a situation when a patient's upset or doesn't get a return phone call. Um, you know, the having the office staff there who uh, can communicate effectively, who can get messages to you in a timely fashion and, and return. And if you have support staff like a, a physician assistant or nurse practitioner, um, that those that those individuals represent you and your practice. And so who you hire and who you surround yourself with has a massive impact upon the patient's perception of you professionally. Moving on to one other hot topic, I think that, um, you know, it, you guys kind of brought this up a little bit, but I want to get more into it is online presence with social media, because for so many of our younger listeners, those in residency fellowship, it's a different world than even when I trained not so long ago and, and when everyone else on this call, because we all, we all are not too far apart, um, you know, in, in practice so much is, is social media. It's become a big part of everyone's life now, especially the younger generation, and so, um, I, you know, I, I've uh, reluctantly in my first year developed a, an Instagram and a Twitter um, and a Facebook presence for my practice um, away from my personal stuff. In fact, my personal Instagram is for my dog, um, not even for myself. And so um, my website master manages all of that. But um, what would you say? Do you guys think that that's something that that should be a recruitment tool? Should us as physicians be commenting on cases or commenting on posting cases, you know, de-identified, of course, um, sh how should we approach social media and, um, and how should our viewers approach it? Leslie, what, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? I'll be honest. I'm a little mixed. Um, I have personally absolutely zero presence on social media. And like you, when I launched my website, my webmaster now kind of puts little blurbs out and, and things, um, and my understanding is the main reason that they feel that that's important is sort of the search engine optimization piece. And so if you get, you know, a number of hits, then when somebody looks up rotator cuff tear in your area, ideally your name will, will you know, come up higher on the list. I, I, I think it's so hard to quantify how valuable or not valuable that is, honestly. Um I don't know if it's worth spending. I mean, you can spend a lot of time, um, you know, putting together different posts and, and certainly some surgeons do and, and post a lot of beautiful techniques and, and are pretty active on social media. I, I personally am not, and, and I, I don't know if it's hurting me or not, but it's, it's just not an area that I feel like I want to, you know, put in a, a whole lot of time or money to. Sam, what about you? What are, what are your thoughts? And you have a huge, you know, group of partners all within sports medicine and shoulder um, some older, some younger, and some more active and less active on social media. Does that, do, does other people's influence on social media influence you or what are your thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I kind of, am, I'm in a very similar boat as Leslie. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a reluctant Instagrammer. Um, I think my last post was pre COVID, but, um, um, but, uh, I mean, I, I do think that there is there is potentially value to it if done well and correctly. Um, I, I just haven't figured that with me, and I, I just, you know, I've I found that through through the process of practice, the <laughs> time is is becomes the biggest limitation, and 
and when I'm kind of between, am I going to, you know, work on this research manuscript or am I going to post on Instagram or am I going to go see my kids or post on Instagram? I just, it's, it has, it has not been worth the energy for me. And it, certainly, I mean, I don't have a way to exactly quantify what I've gotten from it, but I often will ask patients, new patients, Hey, how did you find out about me? And so it's kind of like the, the level five version of figuring out how uh, people get to you. But I don't know if I've ever had somebody say, I found you on Instagram. Rachel, I want to know how many patients have come to you because they saw your dog on Instagram. <laughs> I will tell you, Pete, many patients comment on <laughs> for all those listening, his hashtag is at Murphy the Frenchie. Um, you should definitely follow him, follow him over me. Uh, no, it's you know what I, what I will say is this, especially for some of my younger patients, my high school athletes, my college athletes, um, they they like to post stuff and tag stuff and whatnot. And and so I always feel a little bit flattered if someone's like, can I take your picture like in pre-op or post-op and they want to take that picture and post it. I always feel a little weird as well because that, that's never something I, I thought of doing as a physician and never how I envisioned growing my practice. But at the end of the day, I think that's part of life now. Um, so I go in waves with social media. There's some days where we post a bunch of technique videos and, and then sometimes not. And I think right now it, it goes hand in hand with COVID. If I have less cases because we're shut down, then I have more time to do all this stuff. And if things are busier, it's kind of less time. I would agree with what Leslie said, though. Th these things do help for the SEO, the search engine optimization, which makes your name appear first in a Google search when someone searches, you know, shoulder surgeon Utah. Um, if Pete has more online presence, he's, his name is going to come up first more often. Um, so, so that kind of stuff does help. And that, that's the reality of the world we live in. Uh, but I think it is, as you, as everyone can hear in, in terms of all of our listeners, it's an area I think that's a little bit controversial and not uniformly um, accepted, I think, by by all surgeons. And so more to come on that. I think it is a way more powerful resource if handled appropriately than, than, I, than I have used or appreciate. I mean, I, an example, I had a, a patient of mine who's a UFC fighter that we treated for distal biceps. And after he won some match, he, he, you know, I texted him and said, Hey, you know, congrats on the win. And he was like, doc, do you see which arm I choked him out with? And so I asked if I could post, post the video, uh, and tag him in it. And that video of him choking out this guy with, with our elbow, uh, got more views than I had, uh, followers, you know? And so I do think that that it is potentially an extremely powerful tool and probably one that I just don't use well. Agreed. One of the things you mentioned, Rachel, that search engine optimization, I think is really important for the web. One of the things the way one of the things that's beautiful about the web is that you can change it all the time. You could update your website, you could add stuff to it. And the more frequently you change it and the more words you put on there, the more you rise in the search engine because it makes your website, as you mentioned, more relevant to Google's algorithm. I wanted to get, we're, we're almost out of time here. Any, any last minute bits of advice, Leslie, for our listeners about how to grow your practice? Um, you know, one thing that Rachel and I had briefly sort of talked about earlier was, you know, maybe not necessarily in terms of growing your practice, but being efficient. Um, it's really important to understand coding and billing. And that's really not something that's taught well during residency or fellowship. And I do try to educate my fellows as they come through. But particularly if you're in a private practice, you need to understand how to code in the office. You need to understand modifiers. You need to know how to bill properly um, and you know optimize that. And so when I first started practice, I did go to a coding and billing course and you know, learned literally from zero to, to 90 in, in just a couple of days. And so I do think that's valuable. And I know the Academy offers a lot of courses and um, their, their private courses, et cetera. But I do think understanding coding and billing so that you, you know, are as efficient as you can financially with the time that you're putting in um, is probably worth your time. I completely agree with you, Leslie, like 100%. And I would say that the first 
two years in practice, I just relied on the the billing company to just do the right thing um, or assume they know how to do what they're doing. And I, and I was too concerned about trying to figure myself out and, and, you know, refine how I wanted to be as a surgeon to pay attention to the billing. And then two years into practice, I went, started to go to these billing courses and then realized all of the errors that occur by billing companies, the things that they are letting slide, you know, some of the things that you, you don't appreciate is that, you know, if a billing company is taking four or 5% of your collections for them to spend, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes to, to collect a hundred dollars is only $5 to them. And it's not really worth their time, but it's $95 to you. And so the more that you can know about billing and coding, the more that you can uh, be able to police the people that are supposed to be collecting for you and maximize your income. Cause you know, we're, we all got into this because we want to take care of patients. We all got into this because we, we want our patients to be happy, but that we are business people and we're running a business and knowing like exactly what Leslie said, knowing the most that you can about the billing and coding side of it will improve your collection significantly. What great advice. It's so true. And, and again, especially for our younger listeners, don't feel guilty about maximizing your billing and coding because uh, just like Sam said, you, you got to do it. Um, we do run a business. We have to pay the bills and keep patients coming in. And as Leslie said, we're not taught about it um, much about it anyway in residency or fellowship. So great advice to end on. It's sometimes something we don't like to think about, or we feel guilty about thinking about it, but we shouldn't. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these two guests that we have today um, have grown and developed phenomenal practices um, in two different areas of the country that are very competitive. And so I think their advice is very valuable. And, you know, at this point, I'm sure we could go on forever, but really that's all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank uh, Sam and Leslie so much for joining us. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, Please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.